Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Changed the World, a podcast about social and political campaigns that have changed the world in some way. My podcast today is with Peter Tatchell, and Peter's one of those extraordinary characters um, with a very long history of campaigns and campaigning, and he's worked on so many different campaigns, so I thought it was better to treat him a bit differently Um bit like when I did Kumi Naidu a few months ago, uh, you know, who is someone you, you know, you, you need to speak to about different campaigns that they've been involved with and different uh, uh, parts of their life. So we, we don't just focus on, on one campaign. Um, but uh, I think just to tell you a bit about Peter's background and history, he's been campaigning since 1967 on issues of human rights, democracy, LGBT freedom, and global justice. And you, you just can't do uh, justice to the richness of his campaign record here, or his successes. Uh, but here are just a few of, of those successes. From the late 70s onwards, he proposed a single comprehensive Equal Rights Act to harmonise the uneven patchwork of equality legislation. Um, and that was... Uh, that proposal was eventually secured with the passing of the Equality Act in 2010. Uh, in 1994, he named 10 Anglican bishops and urged them to tell their truth about their sexuality, accusing them of homophobia and hypocrisy. Four years later, he interrupted the Easter sermon of the then Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey, in protest about his oppos- opposition to gay equality. In 1999, he ambushed the motorcade of Robert Mugabe, attempting uh, a citizen's arrest on charges of torture. And he repeated that attempt in Brussels in 2001, which resulted in him being beaten and unconscious by Mugabe's bodyguards. And you'll hear more about those sorts of instances in the interview. He coordinated the Equal Love campaign from 2010 in a bid to overturn the UK's twin uh, legal bans on same-sex civil marriages and opposite-sex civil partnerships. And that helped him win the same, uh, same-sex same marriage as an issue, but also, uh, not yet, opposite-sex civil partnerships. He's director of the Human Rights Organisation, the Peter Tatchell Foundation, and You'll hear at the end of the interview, he he asked people to join that. So I'll, I'll put the link to the um, the foundation in the in the notes to the to the podcast. I think you'll find he's got a sort of strikingly calm presence, and he's very thoughtful and also strategic about the way that he thinks. So I hope you 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 this sparks some thoughts in your own thinking about campaigning. Uh, so um, just finally to say, this is my first uh, Zoom podcast. So. I think it went okay. I think the sound is fine. Um, And I hope uh, you enjoy it. So here's the podcast. Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Changed the World. I'm here with Peter Tatchell. Hello, Peter. Greetings. Uh, uh, my first uh, Zoom podcast. Hopefully, it's going to 
go like a dream. Um, Peter, I, I wanted to ask you really about your, just to, to start with your, your life in campaigning. And you've been campaigning, I think, since you were a teenager. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, over 50 years or so. Um, and you've worked on such a range of issues, um, as well as sort of different uh, phases of your campaigning life. How, how do you decide what to work on at any specific time? Do you, do, do you have a way of sort of calibrating what, what you should move towards or, or what you should drop? Well, often what I work on is partly influenced by requests from victims of persecution or their representatives. So it's a response to a request from an individual or a campaign to help uh, support and amplify what they're doing. But I also tend to focus on the lesser known, more hidden um, human rights issues. So uh, I'm all in support of the struggle for the rights of the people of Tibet, but there's a huge number of organizations working on that campaign. So I tend to focus on the less well-known and supported campaigns like the human rights of the persecuted Arab minority in Iran, um, the persecuted Balak minority in Pakistan, and uh, the people of West Papua who have been annexed and occupied by the Indonesian military for over half a century. Now, these are campaigns that not a lot of other people are working on. So I feel that's where I can have the most impact and where the support is most needed. Yeah. And those, uh, those issues, some of them have been around for, for quite a while. Um, if you look, looking back over your career, some, you know, you've obviously been, I think you're known for a couple of things, but one of the things you're known for is being a successful campaigner. So you've had a lot of success. Obviously you haven't won every single issue you've campaigned on, but to what extent is, you know, would you go into working on an issue uh, thinking you're going to win or, do you, you know, is winnability a big factor or do you go for it because it's important and the winning comes second as it were? My criterion is what is important, what is needed, what are not many other people doing. So that's the way I look at the issue. Um, you know, I championed the right of the people of East Timor to self-determination after Indonesian annexed the country. Many people said, you'll never win, East Timor won't win, Indonesia's too powerful. But I had faith in the people there and their struggle. And so I worked with them. And eventually, after, well, 30 plus years, um, they won their independence. So I'm in it for the long haul. I realize that sometimes you don't get an immediate uh, win. It takes time. And I think that, you know, if a cause is worth supporting, it's worth investing energy in over many, many decades. Um, that's why how I approach the issue of same-sex marriage in Britain when I first campaigned for it back in the early 1990s, <laughs> no one said, 
that, that it would be winnable. People said, you know, it's just not going to happen. Give up. Mm. Um, but I said, well, you know, it is a just cause, you know, whatever you think about marriage as an institution to discriminate against LGBT plus people and deny them the right to marriage is homophobic discrimination. And therefore, if it takes 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, I'm going to campaign for it. Yes. And within those sort of, uh, within that campaign, but also previous campaigns, um, you've used, I guess, a range of tactics. Uh, but I guess one of the other things you're famous for is using uh, nonviolent direct action. Um, I think I've read that you've used it over 3,000 times and you've been arrested over 100 times. Is, is that right? That's correct. Um, so, but again, you know, how do you decide when you use those sorts of methods uh, versus, I don't know, sitting around the table with the government or regulatory authorities or whoever it might be? Um, and when, yeah, when do you, so when do you decide to sit down with people and when do you decide to step away? Well, I think my preference is always to sit down and negotiate to get a solution. So I've done that on many, many, many occasions. And sometimes I've actually got a result through talking and negotiation. But when that doesn't work, then I think you have to up the ante. And that's why on issues like um, the church and other religious um, homophobia and discrimination against women. You know, I, I went along with all the negotiations, all the lobbying, and it was only when those tactics didn't work that I resorted to nonviolent direct action and civil disobedience. And I did that because I read history and I knew that uh, there's a long pedigree of organizations and movements that when they failed to get a result through traditional lobbying resorted to those methods. And I'm thinking of the suffragists and the black civil rights movement in America, they resorted to nonviolent direct action. Uh, well, in the case of the suffragettes, it wasn't entirely nonviolent, I've got to say, but, um, um, and those tactics did a number of things. First of all, they put those issues in the news and on the political agenda. By doing a direct action, what you do is aim to get media coverage, not for its own sake, but in order to raise public awareness about an issue. And then, of course, to put people in power under pressure. And this has worked very, very well all throughout history. You know, when the Chartists began their mass movement for the right of working class men to vote, um, their action, far more than any parliamentary lobbying, put this issue on the mainstream political agenda and raised awareness throughout Britain that working class men could not vote. And the suffragettes did the same thing when it came to votes for women. Do you, do you ever feel, did you ever feel that there was a sort of inflation of action in other words that you know people would dismiss certain types of action direct action in your case or the fact that you know you were involved people would say oh that's you know that's what peter tatchell does 
and then you had to sort of in a way raise the stakes in order to be heard or you know or did you feel that that was something that was was always going to get you the, the attention that you wanted for instance with the media you know what did you have to do more to get in get into the front pages or get into the media as things went along well first let me say that um in all these different campaigns it has never been me alone i've been one of many and although I've organized and coordinated many of these campaigns, it's only through the support of others that we've collectively been successful. Um, having said that, um, you're right. Um, throughout my 53 years of human rights campaigning, much of what I've done has been dismissed by critics as stunts, uh, as uh, media whoring, all those kind of things. But the same charges were <laughs> leveled against every human rights activist ever. Um, but, you know, the media is the main means of social communication in our society, both the mainstream media and now social media. So unless you make your protest effective, exciting, informative and well thought out, you won't get in the media and you won't get your message to a wider audience. I mean, it's great to produce a leaflet. It's great to hold a public meeting. But if you want to reach millions of people, and every true activist does, then you've got to use the media. And that means being professional about the way you do your campaigning. Um, you know, I can remember um, in the 60s and 70s, I was constantly frustrated that many people whose campaigns I wholly supported just were not doing them in a professional way. And therefore they weren't getting the media coverage. They weren't engaging the public. They weren't putting people in power under pressure. So a good example is I remember with the formation of Outrage, the LGBT direct action group in 1990. Um, when that group was formed, I said to everybody, look, we have to professionalize the way we do this. We want to remain radical, but also professional. So, um, you know, I took examples of good news releases done by organizations like Greenpeace uh, or Amnesty International. And I took, I saw the structure, how they were done. I took and adapted the best bits of them. And that became the outrage style of doing news releases. And I've got to say that journalists said to me often, you know, wow, this is really slick. This is really well produced. You've given us everything we need. You've explained the issue. You've given us some quotes. You've produced some research to back up your claims. And you've given us examples of individuals who have been victimized. That's what we need to write a good story. So very quickly, um, we got good media coverage. And of course, it was aided by the fact that um, I felt it was very important to cultivate journalists um, who would be sympathetic. So back then, there weren't many journalists who were sympathetic or even written, wrote about LGBT plus issues. So I searched out those journalists who wrote about women's rights, about black and ethnic minority rights, and about um, uh, the rights of human, human, human rights in general. And then I approached them, I arranged a meeting with them to explain face to face what outrage was, what we were trying to do, and gave examples of 
uh, our campaigns and the issues that, that we thought needed addressing. And it was through these personal contacts that these journalists became great allies and they regularly over many years reported accurately and objectively our campaigns. Now I'm certain that without that personal connection, they wouldn't have been so committed to reporting what we were doing. And I think the combination of the personal connection plus the very professional standard of news releases uh, was what helped get outrage, probably more media coverage than any other social movement at that time. Do you think it's more difficult to get your voice heard now uh, in, a, in, the, in the age of A, social media, B, as you talked about the professionalization of campaigning, I mean, there are, are now so many campaigning platforms and organizations, uh, you know, in, in very small niches often, but also now you have the right that seems to be, if you like, a bit better, better organized following some of those same campaigning techniques um, but from a right or far right point of view, does all of that make getting your voice heard or getting the attention of the media uh, more difficult, do you think? I think you're right. Um, journalists today is not as, are not as accessible as they once were. And of course, they're bombarded with news releases. You know, a news desk might get 900 or, you know, one half thousand news releases in a single day. So to make your news release stand out, you've either got to be known or you've got to do something, you've got to give a really snappy, sharp uh, subject field that will grab their attention. And often you have to nowadays, uh, or even then I suppose, um, do follow up phone calls to check they've received it. That is, you know, that does make it more difficult. But on the plus side, of course, we now have social media. And so through social media channels, we can subvert, to some extent, uh, the mainstream news agenda and news channels. Did you, you know, you talk about the, um, the attention you've got um, and sometimes taking risks. Uh, I, I think you, you, you've obviously been targeted time and again, either in the media or by particular I don't know, politicians. You were called a homosexual terrorist public enemy number one, uh, these sorts of, uh, I, I suppose they're, they're, they're slurs really, but I, I guess they might have affected you. Did you ever feel, oh, you know, that this is too much, you want to stop, take a more of a backseat role? What, what's kept you going in the face of that kind of abuse? Well, see, many people would see this abuse as a terrible, horrible thing. And at one level, it is, and it was. I mean, to be defamed, reviled, demonized, vilified in the mass media and parliament over many years was a pretty tough experience. But another way of looking at it is, hey, if I wasn't effective, they would ignore me. The fact that they're abusing me and the campaigns I'm involved in shows that we are needling them. We're making a point. We're riling them. And they wouldn't react in that way if they weren't feeling threatened. So our threat was not violent, but it was a moral, ethical threat. Um, you know, a rational, reasoned threat. Um, we were challenging an orthodoxy, a tradition, a set of consensus ideas 
that they had adhered to for decades and which had been often unquestioned for decades or longer. Um, so I saw it in a positive light. I know it was tough sometimes because, of course, these public attacks also resulted in me getting a torrent of hate mail, death threats, and even physical violent assaults upon my home and my person. Now, I've been attacked physically and violently well over 300 times, um, mostly by homophobes, far-right extremists, in some cases by Islamists and other defenders of various um, tyrannical regimes. But, you know, horrible though it was, and I, I did end up with post-traumatic stress disorder for many years, and I still occasionally have nightmares or night terrors. You know, horrible though that is, um, you know, I, I, I just thought, well, you know, I'm obviously with my colleagues, we're, we're doing something that is effective, that is, is actually motivating these people to come at us. Um, and that shows that we are, you know, producing change or will produce change in the end. We're going to uh, take a, a short break. We'll be back in, in one minute. Welcome back. I'm here with uh, Peter Tatchell. We're recording this on Zoom and we're talking about um, uh, Peter's life as a campaigner. And Peter, we were talking about some of the, uh, you know, terrible threats that you'd had and also physical violence. Um, yeah, so, uh, it, you know, you, you talked about the sort of resilience that you had against that sort of building on your your actual progress that you were that you were making um, and, and feeding, if you like, off that. But were you ever, I mean, you were, you were as we said before, arrested a, a, a large number of times. What, what happens when you get arrested? I mean, obviously each occasion was different, but I think you've said as well that you, you were arrested over a hundred times, but you've not been prosecuted many times. So what happens when you're arrested? And is, it, is that a frightening experience or is it generally just a, a more mundane experience? Well, like many protesters, uh, most of the times I've been arrested, it has been with undue and unnecessary force, and even violence on a few occasions, by the police. Um, I have never resisted arrest, but even so, um, I have had my arms twisted up my back until my arm almost came out of my shoulder socket. Um, I've had um, those uh, handcuffs that are like small stocks, um, which go around your wrists, and then they, the police have often squeezed them so tight that they've cut into my nerves and bone, um, causing excruciating pain. Um, now, I'm not the only one who's experienced this, but you know, that is pretty scary. 
Um, I've never been put in a really life-threatening chokehold, but I have had, you know, arms and knees on my neck. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of, I just, I just accept it as par for the course. You know, um, I, I think of other inspirational human rights defenders who've gone through far worse. You know, if I was in Russia or Iran or Saudi Arabia or Uganda, you know, I would have been beaten to a pulp. I would have been, um, you know, put in prison. I would have been tortured. I possibly even would have been killed. So I put things in perspective and think, well, I've got off quite lightly by comparison to many people. You were arrested or at least detained by the police in, in Russia, I think. I, I saw the video of that. That looked fairly calm. Well, um, <clears throat> yes, <laughs> relatively speaking, I guess. Um, one of the times, uh, well, in fact, two of the times um, before I was arrested, the Moscow police stood back and allowed me and other activists, particularly the Russian activists, to be beaten by neo-Nazi and ultra-nationalist gangs. Um, you know, I was nearly knocked unconscious uh, in 2007 when I went to Moscow to support the attempt to hold a pride parade there, which the mayor of Moscow banned and uh, the police tried to arrest us. Some of us were arrested, but I escaped. Um, and then later on, in full police view, I was violently attacked by neo-Nazis um, eventually dragged to the ground, almost knocked unconscious. And when I was beginning to lose consciousness, the police stepped in and arrested me while allowing my attackers to walk free. And when I was in the prison van later on, I noticed that one of my attackers walked up to the police lines and flashed some kind of ID and was allowed through those police lines. So the Russian activists said to me later that they thought almost certainly he was either a police officer in plain clothes or a neo-Nazi working in cahoots with the Moscow police. Well, that's uh, horrendous, but also maybe not so surprising in some ways. Um, the other thing I'd say is that, is that on that occasion, the police put me in a van with a, some, uh, by myself, with uh, four other arrestees, neo-Nazi arrestees, who were threatened to kill me in the police van. I, I, I was absolutely terrified. Um, later on, eventually, because of my severe injuries, I'd been badly hit in the eye and my eyesight was damaged and I had pop concussion. So I was taken to a hospital where the um, police wanted me to undergo x-rays. But, but very fortunately for me, I'd been warned in advance, never let the Russian police subject you to any medical examinations. Um, and in this particular case, my anxiety was that they may have deliberately adjusted the level of radiation in the x-ray to give me a potentially very damaging dose. So I refused 
even though the police um, were very aggressive and hostile, that I didn't undergo that X-ray. Wow, that's uh, that's that's quite some threat. So, uh, yeah, talking about and you, you mentioned choke holes, and, and you know, I wanted to ask you about the the Black Lives Matters um, protests um, and the movement more generally. Um, what, what do you what do you make of 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 that movement movement and and uh, what do you yeah what's the sort of what's your take on the progress they've made so far? Well, I think the Black Lives Matter protest has been absolutely inspirational. It has completely moved the dial. It's raised awareness about racism in the way that nothing ever in my lifetime has done. Um, so I pay tribute to all those black activists and allies um, for the success that they have achieved. But of course, raising awareness and getting a public debate um, is the first step. You also have to have concrete, specific, achievable demands. And one of the demands has been about the statues must fall, um, which I think the statue should be removed. Uh, We should not be celebrating racists and slave owners and those who have benefited from slavery and colonialism. But more than that, we need to have a much bigger, broader agenda to deal with institutional racism. Uh, Not just police brutality, but institutional racism across all sectors of society. So what's really needed now is a comprehensive program to address these issues. Now, some people have made progress even before the recent protests along these lines. Uh, David Lammy, the Labour MP in particular, has done some fantastic work Mm. with a series of recommendations about how to deal with institutional racism in British society. But I fear that those excellent demands or proposals have not had sufficient publicity and awareness. And I think and hope that the Black Lives Matter movement will now focus more on these concrete ideas, concrete things that need to be done. Because any movement with social change, any movement for social change, to be successful, you've not only got to protest against what is wrong, you need to come up with what is right, with the alternatives, with things that actually work, that will make your cause come into being to be effective to get a result as, as part of their sort of um, call that, you know, they, they reference on, uh, on their website, um, you know, the struggles uh, for uh, equality um, in different ways. So, you know, and solidarity with, uh, with women's rights groups, with, with um, LGBT groups, etc. So is there um is there a possibility of different movements linking up? Well, is there, is there space for different movements to link up a bit more, um, uh, more than just in, in words, as it were? Uh, uh, and do you see that as being something that might happen next? I certainly think there's space. And I certainly think it's very necessary. You know, unity is strength. Together, we are stronger. Uh, I've been really impressed that many sections of the LGBT plus community have rallied to support Black Lives Matter. Um, 
and really to recognize that within our own community, we need to do more to raise the profile and support the initiatives of black LGBT plus people. Um, it's very clear that as has always existed, there are different social movements, all concerned in different ways about social justice. So if I go back to the early 1970s, when I was involved in the Gay Liberation Front, we had very much an intersectional and um, broad alliance approach, whereby we linked up with and supported the struggles for women's liberation, black liberation, Irish liberation, and the struggles of working class people and trade unions, because we saw all these different movements as being different, but also sharing commonalities of injustice, victimization, marginalization. And we reasoned that if we could all work together to support each other, then collectively we would be stronger. So when the black activists of the Mangrove Nine uh, trial uh, were in court, the Gay Liberation Front was there standing in solidarity. Um, you know, when women's liberation activists campaigned against the Miss World contest on the ground that it was misogynist and sexist, we were there in solidarity with them. So I think, you know, looking back, not everything that we strive to achieve in that era worked, but um, we did make those connections and we did build a, I think back then, certainly until recently, perhaps, um, back then there was a lot great, a lot more solidarity between different social movements. Um, yes. you know, I think about the uh, big campaign against the Tory government industrial relations bill in 1971. Um, the Gay Liberation Front joined the mar mass march by trade unions to show our solidarity, recognizing that this would be a grave injustice to working people. Um, on that march, we were actually abused and attacked with banner poles and coins by some trade unionists who were homophobic and who didn't want us there. Mm. Uh, the same thing happened with the Troops Out movement uh, in 1971, 72. Uh, the gay liberation contingent on that march uh, was often subjected to abuse, threats and insults by other groups and other individuals there. But we stood our ground. We said, no, whatever you throw at us, we will stand in solidarity with your struggle. We are against internment without trial. We're against the British Army shooting dead peaceful protesters. And yeah, I, I, I just want to, I mean, thinking about some of the, some of the um, sort of disunity, I suppose you might call it. Um, and, and you wouldn't imagine those sorts of things would happen uh, now, but, I suppose what you do have is a much more organized far right. I don't know if it's more organized or it just is better at seeming better organized, but it certainly seems growing in the UK at the moment and obviously in the US. Is that, do you, how much uh, do you see that as a, a threat, both in terms of sort of, as I said before, campaigning tactics being, being co-opted by, by the far right? 
but also as a sort of direct threat to some of the issues that you care about? Well, you're certainly right that the far right is, um, you know, much bigger and better organized, much more voluminous and um, visible than it has been for many, many, many years. Um, but I think we also need to keep it in perspective. Um, in the 1970s, the far right National Front won up to 20% of the vote in some regions, uh, in some elections. Nearly 20% of the vote. Um, the far right electorally today is nowhere near that. Now, of course, you could say that the Conservative Party, the Conservative government, has adopted much of the far-right agenda. You know, it's um, hostile immigration policy. It's um, move for a hard Brexit. Um, it's um, general lack of support and defence of basic civil liberties. Um, these have become incorporated into the governing party of the country. So maybe you could say that the votes that might have gone to the far-right here and now, are now going to the Conservatives. Now, I don't want to brand all Conservatives with the label of being far right. There are many liberal progressive Conservatives. I disagree strongly with David Davis on a number of issues, but on civil liberties, on state surveillance, on unnecessary police powers, he, as a Conservative, has been very good. And I have actually worked with him and other Conservatives to score a number of victories. Um, you know, I don't agree with the Conservatives, but I think sometimes to win a battle, you have to make alliances with people on a particular issue where you may disagree. So for example, under the Public Order Act of 1986, it used to say that um, it was unlawful to insult another person. And for many years, ever since the Public Order Act was enacted, uh, myself and other civil liberties people argued that insult was too low a threshold because almost anything that anyone says um, could potentially be an insult to someone. So we had a campaign where we brought together um, LGBT groups, secular groups, Christian groups, civil liberties groups, and even, as I said, some conservative members of parliament to get that section of the Public Order Act repealed. And we succeeded. We got it repealed. And then after that, we had the government's attempt to impose the new um, um, public order um, restrictions, um, which would criminalize or penalize um, causing alarm, no, not no, sorry, causing annoyance or nuisance. Um, and again, we felt that was a far too broad sweep, you know. You know, a busker in a, in a shopping centre could be construed as causing a nuisance or a protest march could be caused as causing an annoyance. So we, that same coalition came together again. And then again, once again, we forced the government to withdraw those clauses from the bill. So this is an example of how you build a broad alliance which can stretch even to people you might normally not agree with, but use their power and influence with the government to get change 
successful change to happen. Peter, I, I really appreciate your your time today, and uh, yes, I hope uh, hope you continue to um, to make a difference in the way that you have been. But I, I just uh, just would thank you, thank you for your time. Well, thank you, and thanks to all the listeners. And can I just finish by saying, mm. if any of you are interested, please go to the website of my foundation, which is www.petertatchellfoundation.org. You'll see. Uh, information about our various campaigns and the top right hand corner there's a little button which says join us Um, if you give us your email address um, it's totally free you can subscribe for no charge Uh, we will send you a weekly email bulletin about various human rights issues Um, so you'd be most welcome to do that if you wish but um, thank you all and I'll finish with my motto which is Don't accept the world as it is. Dream of what the world could be and then help make it happen. Thank you. Thank you, Peter.